Thank you all for coming. It's great to see so many familiar faces. Thanks for taking the time to read my draft, Legality and Rough Justice. Uh, I've presented at this particular workshop uh, once before. It was a couple of years ago. The year before that, uh, I, I ran the workshop just like uh, Professor Yale's doing now. Um, and uh, in my experience, I found that many of you were particularly interested not just in the substantive topics that the professor was writing about, um, but also in the writing process itself, methodological decisions and questions. So I, I want you all to know when we ultimately get up to the Q&A, uh, and I want to encourage you, if you have those kinds of questions, methodology questions, writing process questions, feel free to ask them. I'm happy to, to, to share. I don't think there's any one way to do it, but I can at least share with you my way uh, uh, of doing it. Um, on the subject of the writing process, I'd say that one of the benefits of um, a tenure, which I'm now dis uh, uh, discovering, is that I have the luxury to do something I could never really do before as either a student or uh, during my pre-tenure years. Um, but uh, something that I think that all writers should take advantage of doing if they can, and that's actually putting their writing down, just shoving it up on a shelf and leaving it there for a good amount of time, forgetting about it for a while. The advantage is, uh, when we were discussing this the other day, uh, that when you come back to it, you've got fresher eyes and fewer cognitive biases. Uh, you no longer remember uh, just how much time and effort you spent laboring over a particular paragraph or section that didn't work. Um, you now just see, okay, it still doesn't work, and I've forgotten all that work I put into it. I'm just going to cut it out. Uh, so you can be more objective about what to hold on to and what to cut out. And why am I talking about that? Uh, uh, this particular aspect of the writing process because the dirty little secret about the piece you have in front of you, which uh, <coughs> Professor Yale may well know this secret already, is that I dated the draft late January, but the truth is I, I haven't really touched it since um, early June of last year when I presented it at the summer uh, faculty workshop, which if any of you guys end up being research assistants, I, I, I highly uh, uh, recommend you, you attend. It's open both to faculty and students who are on campus over the summer. Uh, the initial version that I wrote uh, of this piece was, uh, you know, a draft, mad dash of a draft. I wrote it last winter before spring teaching began. Uh, then I put it on a shelf. And then the second version was a mad dash after graduation and before the early workshop, early June workshop. And then, as I said, I put it on the shelf again. Uh, and I, I had planned to go back to it at the end of last summer. Um, you know, I was going to work on some uh, uh, essays for a couple symposia. Uh, Rebecca, you're aware of this. And, uh, you know, the idea was, okay, that'll be my June and July. Uh, okay, those symposia essays are just getting done now. So I'm ready to turn back to this. And this is where you guys can really help me because... Uh, you know, it, it, just in terms of preparing for this workshop, I've been getting my head back around what's in this draft, what works, what doesn't work, and I'm really interested in your comments to help me think through it even more. Um, I, I think that delay was good for another reason as well. Uh, it actually gave the court time to decide a case 
called, um, I, I don't think the court was waiting for me, but uh, you know, I, I got lucky, it was fortuitous, that um, in the meantime, the court decided a case, I, I, I think it's pronounced Hein, H-E-I-E-N v. North Carolina, which was just decided middle of last month, I think December 15th. Um, the part of me that hopes that our criminal justice system may uh, ultimately rid itself of its most most pathological aspects is extremely disheartened by the decision in Hein. The part of me that's looking to write a good article, uh, I'm positively giddy because I really feel like the decision in Hein uh, 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 goes a long way towards backing, towards supporting my overarching premise. Um, So for those of you who are familiar with Hein um, and who wondered, why isn't he talking about that? Uh, stay tuned. Next draft, I'll get around to talking about Hein. I, I, I think I'll have to talk about it quite a bit. For those of you who aren't familiar with Hein, I'll talk a little bit about the case and why I think it's important in a few minutes. Um, more importantly, for those who just kind of wandered in for the free lunch and um, have not yet even glanced at the paper, I think it's important that I spend a few minutes first sketching out exactly what my premise is. Okay, so at a a very high level of abstraction, before getting to my precise premise in this piece, um, maybe I should just uh, say something about my research agenda because I think this piece fits squarely within it. Um, Okay, at that same high level of abstraction, I think uh, what I've tried to do in every piece that I've written to date, um, it's probably also how I try to teach any criminal procedure course, in criminal substance or crim theory course as well, um, is I try to confront the question of how to effectively constrain police and prosecutorial discretion without compromising necessary flexibility. It strikes uh, me that this is the most important and biggest question, and the hardest question for that matter, in all of criminal law and procedure. My particular take on it um, uh, has been to champion what I call equitable checks or particularistic checks uh, 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 on uh, uh, police and prosecutorial discretion. Uh, I I think that's been my contribution. Um, I I pushed back against a a sort of hard or exclusive reliance on what I call in this draft and elsewhere, the legal legalistic checks. And thinking about what a legalistic check is, you know, you can just consider something that's more rule-bound, or to the extent we might call it a standard, it's at least a well-structured standard. Uh, So, for example, in a recent article, which was uh, published uh, uh, last year, I confronted the question of arrest discretion, and I talked about how we've regulated arrest discretion constitutionally in a very uh, legalistic way. Um, uh, Specifically, the court has said that they're just going to ask one question when they're trying to get at uh, whether an arrest is uh, uh, constitutional for Fourth Amendment purposes, that is to say, uh, uh, to get at the question of whether it's constitutionally reasonable. And they say, uh, we're just going to ask the question, is there probable cause? Nothing further. Uh, and they're not going to ask any questions in turn, in turn about uh, the wisdom, uh, uh, the good reasons or the bad reasons behind the arrest itself. 
I've argued, uh, and I argued in that piece, that our hard reliance on uh, the sole measure, what I call a quantitative measure, because it's a, a quantitative uh, 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 metric of suspicion of legal guilt, that it's just too cramped. Reasonableness ought to mean something more than this. Um, a suspect or an arrestee ought to be able to say that an arrest, at least sometimes be able to say that an arrest is unreasonable, even if, even where it's supported by probable cause. This piece builds on that point. It acknowledges the flip side as well. I mean, maybe a flip side that might be surprising. Um, uh, you might be surprised to hear this coming from a former public defender. But that's that on the, you know, policing side, on the prosecution side, you know, there's also good reasons to act sometimes, even without probable cause, um, uh, that a search or seizure may be reasonable, even when uh, the kind of legalistic hurdles that the court have been, has put in place have not yet been surmounted. Uh, uh, and judges should be able to consider uh, kind of equitable or particularistic or all things considered reasons on both sides, uh, you know, to kind of push away from these hard legalistic measures. Uh, 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 more to the point, these hard quantitative uh, measures, these metrics of technical legal guilt. So, you know, in the Fourth Amendment context, again, we're talking about probable cause, but you can think about it also in the conviction context. There we're talking about proof beyond a reasonable doubt. You know, we don't ask, hey, was it right to convict this person? Is this person morally blameworthy, what I've called uh, normatively guilty? Uh, uh, no, we just ask, are they legally guilty? And we ask nothing further. Okay, the odd thing is, you know, when we, if, once we come to understand that maybe there's a reason on both sides to sometimes make arguments, or there's there ought to be an opening on both sides for arguments that there are reasons beyond um, uh, 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 the legalistic, typical questions to act or not act, or to push back against an action taken by a police officer or a prosecutor. The interesting thing, the odd thing, is that courts actually do sometimes take a more nuanced. Uh, or equitable, extra-legalistic, particularistic, all things considered, whatever term you want to use, and I tend to use a bunch of them, they sometimes do consider uh, these reasons, but only when the state asks for it, only when state actors ask for it, only when the particularistic evaluation operates uh, uh, for the benefit or to the benefit of the state. So you've got these legalistic hurdles, uh, which uh, uh, supposedly, ostensibly, police and prosecutors have to surmount. But there's plenty of room on the sides for them just to run around the hurdle, to circumvent the hurdle based on the particular uh, demand circumstances, the conditions on the ground. Uh, so a prosecutor or a police officer can say, on balance, what I'm doing is more or less reasonable, even if I haven't exactly crossed the T's or dotted the I's or jumped through the hoops that ostensibly uh, 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 are required. Um, but it's only the police officer and the prosecutor who can do this. So what do I mean? Let me give you, uh, you know, make it a little more concrete. Going back to the Fourth Amendment question, you know, a police officer without probable cause can search or seize even um, in the absence of meeting, you know, this quantitative threshold 
provided the exigencies of the situation demanded, uh, provided uh, the officer has a reasonable pr pressing, what's sometimes called special need, uh, one that's often raised is officer or public safety. So uh, a real-world example, which I put in my paper, is um, uh, uh, LAPD detectives uh, 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 Furman and Van Adder, two uh, fairly well-known names if you were paying attention um, uh, it, to the O.J. Simpson case in the mid-'90s. Uh, the detectives hopped the wall at O.J.'s Rockingham estate shortly after um, the murders of his wife and um, her friend Ronald Gold Goldman, um, and they hopped it without a warrant, without probable cause, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, almost certainly with some hunch that O.J. might be the perpetrator, but significantly they were also able to uh, make the claim, eh, perhaps specious, but the court bought it, that they were reasonably concerned that um, there might be additional victims on the ground, on the grounds of the estate, that there might be someone else in need of emergency um, aid, including O.J. himself. And they pointed to the fact that they noticed a blood splatter on, or a blood spot on his white Ford Bronco. Um, okay, so they didn't have the probable cause. They didn't have the warrant. They had not met the legalistic um, uh, requirements for the search or seizure. Um, uh, uh, oh, and there was a seizure, seizure, by the way. What did they find on the, uh, the grounds? The uh, famous bloody glove. Um, might have been better if they hadn't found it since the prosecutors botched that part of it and if the, glo the glove didn't fit and so you had to acquit. Um, but, uh, you know, it, what's significant is the officers provided, um, uh, indicated that their motivation was to provide first aid. They didn't have to do that. Under uh, a prevailing uh, 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 jurisprudence, they could have just said, uh, uh, look, it, it doesn't matter what our subjective motivation is because sub subjective motivation – I'm sorry. Do you have a tissue? Uh, Thanks. Appreciate it. Because subjective motivation is irrelevant uh, for Fourth Amendment uh, 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 inquiry. Um, uh, uh, that is to say the police officers could have uh, been using this – special need of providing first aid in a baldly pretextual way, and it wouldn't have mattered. It just depends, do they have this other option? Do they have some other reasonable grounds? So notice the officers there had two options at their disposal. They could have satisfied the legal hurdles uh, by making out, uh, by, by establishing probable cause and then getting a warrant. Or they could have, uh, uh, and if they had done so, they would have been operating in a safe harbor their entrance onto the grounds would have been categorically constitutionally reasonable. But even failing that, they had an alternative. They could uh, rely upon um, uh, 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 something else. They could say uh, the search and seizure was reasonable for other reasons, all things considered. Um, this state of affairs within bounds, I think, is sensible. It's appropriate. It, it, if nothing else, it's inevitable. You know, it's going to be the case that no matter what legalistic hurdles we put in the way of police and prosecutors uh, to uh, uh, promote public safety and to um, facilitate uh, uh, effective law enforcement and lots of other, you know, on-the-ground reasons, um, to, to, we're going to have to uh, carve exceptions, allow 
end runs around um, these legalistic hurdles. I think um, we've uh, uh, been too liberal in, the, uh, in carving these exceptions. We put too few bounds um, in uh, 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 the way of an officer claiming these uh, exceptions. But uh, something else that I focus on a lot on these, uh, in this piece is just how one-sided those exceptions are. Uh, it's wholly asymmetric, as I put it. So state actors have the ability to um, erect what I would call a shield against um, constitutional attack, even when they failed to satisfy some legalistic hurdle, uh, here probable cause and a warrant. Uh, Yet a suspect or a defendant never has the ability to say that a search or a seizure is all things considered unreasonable once officers find themselves in the safe harbor. Once they've uh, met the legalistic threshold, the officer is set. In this way, um, what we've taken away from suspects and defendants uh, defendants is the opportunity to to, uh, employ equitable arguments as a constitutional sword. So... The uh, case that I discussed quite a bit in my last article, a case called Atwater v. Lago Vista, you know, I see a lot of faces from Crim Pro. Um, uh, uh, you guys probably remember this case. The court permitted an officer to arrest someone um, for a non-jailable traffic offense, um, you know, failing to buckle herself up and her kids up, uh, an offense punishable by only a $50 fine. Um, the court uh, notably it, it, it conceded that the arrest was senseless, that it was a gratuitous humiliation, their words, a pointless indignity, their words. But they said, okay, none of that matters. It doesn't matter that this was, uh, from a colloquial standpoint, wholly unreasonable. Uh, The officer had probable cause to believe an offense was committed. Hence, um, uh, the arrest is constitutionally reasonable, full stop. They're in the safe harbor. Um, uh, Likewise, a case called uh, Ren v. United States, narcotics officers, stopped a vehicle for taking an illegal left turn. Of course, the officers had um, uh, uh, no interest in enforcing uh, traffic laws. They didn't care that this vehicle had taken an illegal left. They stopped the vehicle because they believed that um, the occupants were selling crack cocaine, and then they ultimately, um, the stop in turn, turned up uh, a a very large amount of cocaine. So they had this unprovable hunch, or at least a hunch that did not amount to probable cause, but they were able to um, uh, uh, take advantage of another hook. Um, And again, uh, they were in the safe harbor because they had probable cause as to the traffic offense. On the flip side, the suspect or the defendant never has the opportunity to, to argue, you know, there's just something wrong with officers making such decisions and taking such actions, at least under these particular circumstances, right? Because in Atwater, the court actually granted that. They said there is something wrong with this. This is, this is foolish. Um, this is a, a horrible misuse of discretion, but it's ultimately a horrible legal misuse of discretion. Um, okay. Uh, so consider now Hine v. North Carolina. <laughs> there the court held... Um, that imagine the same officer, or com- combine the officers from Wren and Atwater. Um, uh, you know, an officer makes a pretextual traffic stop uh, or a low-level arrest uh, for a non-jailable offense. Um, now imagine that the offense that the officer has in mind, the, uh, the offense that the officer is cla- claiming pro- probable cause as to, the trivial traffic offense, which is just a proxy to get at the much more serious offense, imagine that that trivial 
offense is not even an offense anymore. That um, uh, the offense has been stricken from the record, invalidated, <coughs> or been limited in such a way that there's no way it applies to these particular facts. That's what Hine dealt with. And Hine said, nevertheless, the arrest was okay. Why? Can anyone guess? Can anyone guess what the, the court said? Court said no Fourth Amendment violation because the officer made a reasonable mistake of law. Now, rem you guys from substantive criminal law probably remember a defendant can never make a, a reasonable mistake of law. And here you're comparing an officer who's actually a legal technician, right? They have legal training. They have legal experience. They can make a reasonable mistake of law. I'm actually okay with that. I'm okay with reasonable mistakes of law. But if you're going to let one group make a reasonable mistake of law, um, uh, it, 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 all else equal, another group should be able to make a reasonable mistake of law. Now, all else may not be equal, but that's not the conversation we're having. If there's some special reason to provide deference to police officers and prosecutors, Okay, but let's have it out. And I've argued in another article that um, actually when it comes to these equitable choices, these normative choices, uh, police and prosecutors have no special claim to um, equitable authority. So with respect, remember it's axiomatic, with respect to the defendant, to the layperson, mistakes of law are never valid excuses. Uh, uh, in, in Scalia's words, the law is the law. The law is this hard construct. Okay, so why the imbalance? And this is probably maybe my, my most counterintuitive, uh, uh, the most counterintuitive part of the paper. I think it's probably my biggest contribution. Um, it's maybe where I have to do the most amount of argument. I trace the, um, the root of the imbalance back to something surprising. I actually think it's the principle of legality. Um, it is, and that's surprising, right? Because you, you probably remember that the whole reason why the modern criminal justice system uh, pays fidelity to the principle of legality is as a way of circumscribing police and prosecutorial, uh, read, executive discretion in the first instance. Um, I've just been discussing fourth, the Fourth Amendment for the most part so far because that's the most well-developed part of the draft that you have. Um, uh, but the draft is and is certainly going to catalog a comparable asymmetry running through a number of different um, uh, stages and aspects of criminal law and procedure. Across the board, we discover this one-sided phenomenon that a prevailing conception of the principle of legality with its heavy emphasis on clearly defined lines, read formal rules, very well-structured standards, has a way of telling suspects and defendants when they can't make equitable arguments more than it has a way of telling police officers and prosecutors when they can't act. Um, so the principle of legality, as it's currently constructed, the prevailing principle of legality, underserves the central purpose of the principle itself which is um, and conventionally has been thought to be a pushback, an antidote to the historical practice of rough justice. So that gets back to my title, um, you know, legality and rough justice. Uh, so it's not just that rough justice um, still exists, that uh, officers and prosecutors still may exact rough justice or extract rough punishment um, in spite of legality rules. What I hope to show, at least in some instances, is that they can extract uh, 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 rough punishment, exact rough justice, sometimes with the help of legality rules. Uh, so 
you know, from bright line Fourth Amendment rules, which I've already discussed, to corresponding use of pretext, which likewise I've discussed already, to using pretrial detention as a way to overcome the fact that proof beyond a reasonable doubt is going to be impossible at trial. So instead of proof beyond a reasonable doubt at trial, this guy's a bad actor. I'm just going to hold him in as long as I can until speedy trial elapses. Uh, to trial rules that prohibit the kinds of equitable arguments I'm talking about on the other side, equitable defenses, to plea bargaining practice, which uh, allows, which is dominated by prosecutors and allows prosecutors to shape uh, equitable bargains or not at their own election, to mandatory sentencing laws, which sort of carve out the ability of judges um, to play an equitable role, <coughs> and um, in turn, you know, pegging a certain price to a certain charge and giving prosecutors the ability to uh, uh, dismiss charges or file them. Um, it, it goes back to the plea bargaining practice, empowers prosecutors with respect to plea bargaining practice. So equitable opportunities, they're out there in, in the conventional, uh, in the modern criminal justice system, but they're reserved only for the state. And, you know, I'll go back to the very first page of the paper, because I have a feeling this might come up during the Q&A. I come up with a hypothetical or a pair of hypotheticals. I, 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 I discuss uh, Bad Barry and Good Gary, uh, you know, and I, 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 I ask you to take it as a given that Bad Barry is just a bad guy. He's one of the usual suspects. He's known to the police. He's known for doing really bad things. He's undoubtedly got blood on his hand, but he's such a good bad guy that, you know, he's kind of, he, he cannot be caught. He cannot be uh, uh, prosecuted. He cannot be convicted for what we all know he's up to. But officers are able to hang their hats on a couple trivial offenses. The ones I provide are disorderly conduct and possession of a fake ID. Um, so he can. Officers who really want to get Bad Barry, prosecutors who really want to get Bad Barry, um, uh, uh, can pursue him because he's legally guilty of these trivial crimes. Uh, they can arrest him. They can search him. They can charge him. They can detain him pretrial. They can hold him until speedy trial time elapses. Indeed, under the formulaic or sort of formalistic approach to double jeopardy, he can even be prosecuted again and again, provided officers are careful with how they use uh, 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 the charges that he faces. Um, it doesn't matter that a conventional offender of these trivial offenses, disorderly conduct and possession of a fake ID, um, would never face any of this, would face maybe a, a, a fine and that's that. Um, uh, uh, officers are able to realize, recognize a little bit of rough justice against Bad Barry. Bad Barry is normatively guilty, and so he can be subjected to rough justice. And maybe counterintuitively, again, from a, a, a former public defender standpoint, I, I don't know. I'm not. Tr I'm troubled by this, but maybe I, I take it as inevitable, and I certainly would be willing to accept it, um, provided there's a little rough mitigation available for someone like Good Gary. So Good Gary is a loving husband uh, to a terminally ill wife. He attempts to euthanize her at her, at her request. Um, you know, imagine there's no, uh, 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 that, that, uh, there's no opportunity, no statutory opportunity um, uh, uh, to 
uh, uh, die in um, uh, this jurisdiction. So he's, he's punishable for attempted murder. He's legally guilty of uh, attempted murder. And let's just assume, I know it depends on your particular moral viewpoint, but let's assume that, um, you know, in this community, people do not find Gary to be a blameworthy individual. Well, it doesn't matter for Gary unless the prosecutor happens to agree, right? Because he's legally guilty of attempted murder. In the pre-legality era, it actually would have been different for Gary. It would have been better because good Gary could have asked a judge or jury to read in, read in an equitable defense, uh, you know, to however... Uh, uh, murder and attempted murder were constructed at common law, be it a common law crime or an early statutory crime with some amorphous mens rea term, which often boiled down to this question, is the guy generally morally blameworthy? And we've concluded that a jury of 12 would not think so. But now um, uh, Gary is hemmed in by legality's bright lines. Uh, he, he has no opportunity to uh, make an equitable argument, at least not at trial. And most he can hope for an equitable plea, which, again, is a, a, a process that's dominated by the prosecutor. The prosecutor has a, a full dominion over the choice of whether to offer that plea. So remember, legality was supposed to constrain this very actor, yet um, Good Gary is getting uh, a, a, an appropriate uh, price only at that actor's sovereign discretion. And it's not just Good Gary that's um, hemmed in. Uh, he's hemmed in by his ability to make arguments, but judges and juries are likewise hemmed in. They lack opportunities to consider any such equitable arguments because a cardinal tenet of the principle of legality, right, is um, uh, that, you know, uh, laws are, 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 are delineated with precision and juries and judges are not allowed to nullify or otherwise act extra-legally. So I perceive this imbalance between um, what police and prosecutors can roughly do and what suspects and defendants can roughly argue against. Um, and I see this imbalance. I, mean, it's, I think it's going to be the hardest part of the piece uh, to make out the claim that this imbalance, which is generated by the principle of legality, is a threat to the very purpose of the principle of legality, which was to constrain, to regulate, to hem in, not uh, suspects and defendants, but police and prosecutorial overreach. Um, and again, you know, to the extent that there should be a balance, I think it depends on my claim, which I made out in an earlier paper, that there's that police and prosecutors have no special claim to deference when it comes to equitable or moral or prudential questions, maybe prudential questions, but certainly not equitable or moral questions. Okay, so Legalistic checks, I think, can only take us so far. And this is where I think um, civil libertarians and a lot of progressives get it wrong, you know, where they just keep saying, okay, well, let's, let's constrain police and prosecutors more by rules. I don't know if we're, we've got the optimal number of rules, um, but I think we're going to hit a limit. And when we hit that limit, I think we have to look elsewhere. We have to look for a different sort of check. Um, and that's where I think equitable checks can fill the gap. Um, in short, you know, a little room for rough mitigation can balance out the kinds of rough justice that are going to be inevitable in any legalistic system. Indeed, that formal legal rules have not just uh, not regulated, but have actually enabled. So, you know, fight rough justice, at least to some degree, with rough mitigation. 
a, a little more bilateral tolerance of rough justice, you know, bilateral, both sides. How that balance is struck, precisely what it looks like, I think that's the debate we should be having. What we have now is um, uh, all the power, all the equitable power in uh, uh, one branch and none of it anywhere else. So now, yeah, I've spoken for more than uh, enough time. Looking forward to your questions. So I'll turn it over to you guys.